All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Mark. Our goal on the listener's commentary is to provide clear, down-to-earth Bible teaching that's in the language of everyday life, that's rooted in the context of everyday life, so that we can hopefully follow Jesus more fully and more completely right in the midst of our everyday life. So that's what we're all about. And in this session, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. And we're working our way through the Gospel of Mark, wrestling with what it teaches us about who Jesus is and what it looks like to follow him. In this particular recording, in Mark chapter 7, 1 through 23, there's really like no clear connection with the preceding section. Like there's no chronological connection, no geographical connection. We've just kind of shifted almost, it seems like, to a special or new scene. For several chapters prior to this, Mark has highlighted Jesus' expanding ministry, how it's been growing. It's and That included really how it's extended through the disciples as Jesus sent them out. Mark has shown Jesus' extraordinary power with various miracles, like uh, the calming of the sea, the casting out the legion of demons, the uh, healing of the sick woman, the no doctor could help, the raising of the dead girl. So he's been demonstrating Jesus' extraordinary power, Plus, there has been the feeding of the 5,000 and then the walking on water that followed all of that. Well, now Mark returns in chapter 7 to what feels like a familiar theme, although it hasn't really shown up for a while in the Gospel of Mark. And that theme is the opposition to Jesus from the religious leaders, especially from the Pharisees. While that feels like a familiar theme, the last time it was mentioned was actually in Mark chapter 3. And so in the chapters uh, between then and now, Mark has highlighted how Jesus' ministry has been growing and expanding. Now, in view of that, Mark returns to the opposition from some religious leaders, even some who come clear from Jerusalem, uh, maybe on some sort of official inquiry to investigate this upstart rabbi with reports of miracles surrounding him. And so Mark chapter 7, verse 1 picks up like this. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered to him after they came from Jerusalem. And so it's not clear in the grammar whether both the Pharisees and the scribes come from Jerusalem or whether just the scribes come from Jerusalem. Either way, what you have are religious leaders Uh, from the Pharisaic party and scribes. Scribes were experts in the Old Testament law. So you have Pharisees and some Old Testament law experts gathered to Jesus. And at least some of them, if not all of them, have come from Jerusalem. And they're probably watching him. They're probably here to investigate and report back as to what they're hearing and seeing. And they gather around him, verse 2, And they saw that some of his disciples were eating their bread with unholy hands. Mark explains, that is, unwashed hands. And so these scribes and Pharisees, as they're around Jesus, uh, see that some of his disciples eat their bread. That means eat their food with unholy, i.e. unwashed hands. The word unholy literally is common or maybe profane, depending on your translation. It just means common. And common isn't bad. Um, in the Old Testament law, in the, the laws of ritual purity and ritual cleanness that you find, say, in the book of Leviticus and elsewhere in the Old Testament Mosaic law, 
there's really these categories. The two big categories at first are holy and common. Holy means things dedicated to the uh, worship of or use for in the service of Yahweh himself. They're set apart for God. Um, common things are just everyday things, ordinary things, um, and they're not necessarily bad. Now, when you talk about common things, there were two categories of common things. Common things could be clean or unclean. They could be pure or impure, right? So clean or unclean. And so in order for a common thing to get leveled up to a holy thing, it had to be clean or pure. So if a common thing was going to enter into the presence of Yahweh or into the service of Yahweh, become holy, it couldn't be in a state of ritual impurity. So this whole eating with unwashed hands that they're concerned about really has to do with ritual purity. But it's dealing with a specific tradition that wasn't an Old Testament tradition. It's some sort of particular kind of Jewish tradition that we don't know the exact origin of. It's not an Old Testament law. It may have stemmed, uh, at least some scholars think it may have stemmed, from the requirements of the priest to eat in the temple in a state of ritual purity after washing. And so certain ones of the sacrifices um, and certain uh, holy days among the Jews, as prescribed by the Mosaic law, require that the priest go through a washing ritual and then eat that food that was sacrificed, the remainder of it, there in the tabernacle, but they had to be washed and in a state of ritual purity. And so it's possible that this idea of washing of hands in order to eat among the Pharisees had derived from that. We're just not totally sure. Wherever it originated from, it, it's a ritual tradition that apparently had been adopted at least fairly widely among some first century Jewish groups, and the Pharisees was one of those groups. In fact, they had all sorts of washing rituals, and Mark actually inserts at this point in his story a parenthetical note explaining that. Look at verse 3. It says, for, parenthetical note, for the Pharisees and all the Jews, or all the other Jews, do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands thereby holding firmly to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they completely cleanse themselves, like go through the mikvah, go through a ritual washing ceremony. And there are many other things which they have received as traditions to firmly hold, such as the washings of cups and pitchers and copper pots. And so Mark inserts this parenthetical note to say there were all these various washing traditions for the sake of ritual purity that the Jews had developed and were practicing in Jesus' day. And he refers to it as the tradition of the elders. Uh, that's important because this reminds us we're not talking about things that were specified in the Mosaic Law. These were uh, traditions that had developed over time in addition to what was stated in the Law of Moses. And the tradition of the elders was really a body of oral traditions that had been growing for several centuries. Uh, and it was really kind of the teachings or the elders or the rabbis' uh, reflections on the proper way to keep the law. What does it mean? to be pure? What does it mean to not work on the Sabbath? What does it mean to, right? Like all these ritual traditions. And this body of teaching was eventually codified in what we know as the Mishnah that came after the time period of the New Testament. And so important 
was ceremonial cleanliness that in the Mishnah, the last 12 tractates are devoted to ceremonial washing and ceremonial cleanness. That's how important it was. And so when you have these scribes and these Pharisees say, hey, hold on, you're not keeping the tradition of the elders. Well, that's the background to it. Um, Your disciples, they are saying, aren't keeping our traditions that we've been developing about how to actually properly keep the law. And so they observe that some of Jesus' disciples aren't eating their food with washed hands, and they're going to ask Jesus about it. Look at verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk in accordance with the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with unholy hands or with common hands? And we've just explained that. And if you haven't listened to uh, the background to the Gospels, and to the recording about the life among the Jews in the first century that really sets the stage for the world we're entering into when we read the Gospels. I have a little section on there where I explain who the Pharisees are, where they came from, what their practices were, and what they believed. It might be beneficial for you to listen to that. But it's worth noting that the goal of these kinds of traditions, um, the traditions of the elders, in their language was to build a fence around the law. That was the goal. The, the goal wasn't to be like overbearing or burdensome in a certain regard. The, really, the goal was to try to be as pure and as holy as possible. That was the, at least the stated objective. And what they meant by building a fence around the law was, well, let's think through, here's what the law specifically says you can or can't do. Let's think through what the, the implications of that are and how we might put that into practice. And that's really what these traditions of the elders were. Um, and so they had a variety of these kinds of things. And so in this case, it's like, well, if it's if it's necessary for the priest to eat with ritual purity in Uh, the tabernacle or the temple, then maybe we should eat with ritual purity in our homes. At least that seems to be at least one potential way maybe some of these ritual washings uh, came into practice. And so the goal was to be pure and holy, but Jesus doesn't think it's working. In fact, Jesus sees places where the traditions of the elders have the exact opposite effect. Instead of helping them keep the law, it's actually causing them to not keep the law. And so Jesus goes on in verse 6, and this is how he responds to their question. Verse 6, but he, Jesus, said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy about you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. And in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, neglecting the commandment of God, Jesus adds, you hold to the traditions of men. Now, notice here Jesus calls them hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy about you hypocrites. Uh, This word hypocrite originally referred to an actor in a play. Uh, The actor plays a role. He puts on a mask, literally, oftentimes in their plays, puts on a mask and plays a role. And that word hypocrite eventually came to be used for a pretender or for someone who appeared to be something that he actually wasn't. And so when Jesus says hypocrites, he's 
uh, he's accusing them of, you are playing a role. You're putting on a face. You're looking good on the outside, but you're not necessarily genuinely good on the inside. That's not who you really are. This is the only place in Mark's gospel where that word hypocrite shows up. It's more commonly used in Matthew's gospel, but here in Mark, it shows up only here. And so, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy about you hypocrites, as it is written. And then Jesus offers a quote, and the quote's from Isaiah 29, 13. And this quote from Isaiah makes two points. Uh, the first point is about lip service, but their heart being far from them. Their worship is really just external lip service, but their heart isn't near to Jesus. Jesus will actually come back to the importance of the heart at the end of the section as he explains Everything that happens here in his interaction with these scribes and his Pharisees to his disciples, he'll make mention of the importance of the heart again. So, the importance of the heart. Lip service, but your heart is far from me. That's the first point of this quote from Isaiah. Second uh, point that shows up in this quote from Isaiah 29, 13 is uh, the idea of teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. And so, your worship is lip service, but your heart isn't near me. And one of the, the effects of that is... You're teaching things that you say are super important, but they're actually just the commandments of men. And Jesus' point is uh, not that this passage from Isaiah referred to these people alone. His point is that what was true of the Jews or the Israelites in Isaiah's day um, is also true of these Pharisees and these scribes that he's talking to in his day, that they have the same problem, a heart that's far from God, and they appear to be so spiritual and so religious, but actually they're, they're ignoring God's teaching, God's commandments. Then Jesus actually drives home the point of the quote with a little bit of sarcasm. His sarcasm shows up in verse 9. Look what he says. He says, he was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. That's sarcasm, right? Like you're experts at breaking God's law. They're the, their goal with their tradition was to help them keep God's commands. And Jesus is saying, you're actually experts at breaking God's commands so that you can keep your tra tradition. Then he offers an example from a different tradition. So we're dealing with these ritual washing traditions, but Jesus is going to say, let me give you an example, a totally different kind of example, where it shows that you're experts at breaking God's commandments just so you can keep your tradition. Here's the example he gives, verse 10. For Moses said... Honor your father and mother. So this is one of the Ten Commandments. It's commandment number five. Honor your father and mother. And honoring your parents was one of the highest social values in the Middle East. Still is in many parts of the Middle East today. So that's one of the Ten Commandments. And then there's another uh, Old Testament law that goes along with it that Jesus quotes. Um, and he quotes, The one who speaks evil of father and mother is certainly to be put to death. This command or instruction is from Exodus 21, and it shows the severity of dishonoring father and mother. And so you're supposed to honor your father and mother. So important is that, that here's the severity of dishonoring that. Both of these instructions are clear commands from God's law. They're commandments of God. Then, at that point, Jesus brings up one of their traditions that he says keeps people from obeying these two commands. Verse 11, but you say, so here's two commands from the law, you experts in having these traditions that keep people from the commands. Uh, here's commands from the law, but you say, 
If a person says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would have helped you is Corban, that is, given to God, uh, you no longer allow him to do anything for his father or mother. Let's clarify a few things. This is a tradition that the was part of that body, growing body of teaching, the tradition of the elders, that Jesus is saying it's actually harmful. It's actually not helping people keep the law. It's causing people to break the law. What is this Corban tradition? Well, the, the Hebrew word for offering or offer up is the word for Corban, or at least that's kind of the way it gets transliterated into English here. It's actually the very same word for the sacrifices in Leviticus 1 through 7. It means offering. And this specific offering tradition that Jesus is referencing here um, is a tradition by which someone could take their wealth, their property, what they had, and say, I'm offering it up to God. I'm dedicating it purely to God. That's what the Corban tradition was. And the result of that, however, is that, well, now I don't have anything to help you with. Like, oh, yes, I know I'm supposed to help my family in their old age, my parents. That's one crucial way I'm supposed to show honor to my parents. But I can't do that because I've set it all apart for God. Um, And so now it was dedicated to God and not available to help your parents. That's the point Jesus is making here. And so he says, you're no longer actually by having that tradition saying, do that. Now you no longer put him in a position where he can do anything to help his mom and dad. He can't honor his aging parents because he doesn't have any property with which to help them. And so verse 13 Thereby you invalidate the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down. And then Jesus says, and you do many things like that. This is just one example, but you do many things like that. So one crucial way of honoring your parents was providing for them as they aged. But by virtue of this tradition, you could get out of it. And thus you could violate the fifth commandment. And that's a problem. And so This is Jesus' point. You guys are experts in doing this sort of stuff. You have lots of things you do like this, where you have all these traditions that supposedly are supposed to help people keep the commandments of God better, but it actually causes people to break the commandments of God. Now, after engaging face-to-face with the scribes and the Pharisees, verse 14, Jesus now focuses on the crowd that's gathered around him again. And so he says this, verse 14, After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside the person which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which come out of the person are what defile the person. Jesus' point is to the crowd that true defilement comes from within, not from without. And so the scribes and the Pharisees said, hey, look, your disciples are washing or eating with unwashed hands. Um, And their concern is ritual purity. That means they're eating in an impure state, according to Pharisaic tradition, not according to the law of Moses. And that's what they're concerned about. And Jesus says to the crowd, let me just clarify something really important. You've heard all these traditions. You're familiar with all these washing rituals. You've heard about all this from the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, guess what? True defilement comes from within, not from without. Uh, Ritual activity and ritual purity was never intended to be the primary concern. It was never intended to be the main kind of purity. It was actually to be instructive. It was to be instructive of the importance of true purity, which means purity of the heart, that which comes 
out of a person is really the true uh, defiling thing. You actually see this same sort of concept in the Old Testament prophets. Uh, when the Old Testament prophets challenged Israel in their day, for example, about offering sacrifices and thinking that's sufficient, even though they're greedy and selfish and oppressing people. And the prophets say, no, like I'm, God is saying through the prophets, I'm not even going to listen to your songs. I'm not going to acknowledge your sacrifices. Why not? Well, because you're like being greedy and you're oppressing people and religious activity and religious purity really uh, don't amount to much if you continue to practice such injustice and wrongdoing. So from the Old Testament prophets, clear through to Jesus, ritual purity means very little without purity of heart. And that's Jesus' point here in verses 14 and 15. There's nothing outside the person ultimately which can defile him if, if it goes into him. It's the things that come out of the person. That's what defiles him. And so Jesus is actually going to like dial this in even more specific and more precise with his uh, disciples after the fact. So look at verse 17. And later, when he had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him about the parable. And so now he's away from the crowd. He's away from the scribes and the Pharisees. He's just got his disciples with him. And they're like, can you, can you kind of clarify that for us? Can you explain that to us? Like you said, nothing going into a person can defile them, but that which comes out of them. But like our whole livelihood, our whole experience, our whole cultural way of viewing the world has been shaped by external things that made us defiled or unclean. And then Jesus' response to the disciples is, are you so lacking in understanding as well? This is a theme through this section of Mark with the disciples, like Jesus wanting to make sure they're not dull of understanding. They don't have a hard heart, that they actually see it. He's working on this, teaching them, helping them get this. And so are you so lacking in understanding as well? Don't you understand that whatever goes into the person from outside cannot defile him? Why not? Well, verse 19, because it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and then is eliminated. Why is ritual purity concerning food not as important as purity of the heart? Well, the reason Jesus gives is because it doesn't go into his heart. Uh, it just goes into his stomach and then it's eliminated. Literally, it goes into his stomach and out into the toilet, out into the latrine, like in and out, like it, it doesn't enter the control center of the person, which is the heart. Then Mark actually offers this parenthetical editorial note at that point. He says, thereby he declared all foods clean. It actually took the apostles and the early church leaders a little while to work out this implication of what Jesus says here. They didn't figure it out at first, but by the time Mark writes, um, his gospel, the implications of what Jesus teaches here have become clear. Mark is writing after the conversion of Cornelius, the first Gentile in Acts chapters 10 and 11, and Peter's vision of the, the big sheet with all the unclean animals where God says, arise, Peter, kill and eat, that led to the conversion of Cornelius. And, and Peter connected the symbolism of the unclean animals in the sheet with the conversion of the Gentiles because the Old Testament law, Leviticus, actually made that same connection that uh, clean and unclean foods is really like a symbolic act to mark you out as separate from the nations, Leviticus says. So it was 
It was the whole rationale behind the food laws. And so Mark is writing after all of that. Um, and, and so for Mark, this implication is now clear. But it took the early church a while to work that out. The point is, just like Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, as we've already seen earlier in Mark, well, he's also the Lord of the purity laws. And Jesus is inaugurating a new era. He's uh, ushering in a new covenant. And in, under that covenant and in his new kingdom, what really matters isn't what you eat. What really makes you either clean or unclean is what emerges from the character of your heart. As the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans chapter 14, the kingdom of God isn't eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so Mark notes this little implication of what Jesus says here. Like, really what matters is what comes out of your heart. And so Jesus goes on then in the following verses to explain. That's what really matters when it comes to purity. Here's what really makes a person unclean in Jesus' kingdom. Look at verse 20. He was saying, that which comes out of the person, that is what defiles the person. For from within, out of the hearts of people come evil thoughts, acts of sexual immorality, thefts, murders, acts of adultery, deeds of greed and wickedness, deceit, indecent behavior, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and that's what defiles a person. The word defiles that's shown up multiple times in this section is also the same word as unclean. Here's what makes a person unclean in the new covenant, under Jesus' kingship, in his kingdom. What really matters ultimately is moral purity, not ritual purity, but moral purity, character purity, character cleanness. And all these things, Jesus says, well, they come out of the heart. And the heart um, in biblical language doesn't just refer to the seat of the emotions. Oftentimes in the English language, the heart is what we feel, right? That's not quite what the heart means, both in Hebrew and in Greek. In biblical thinking, the heart refers to the seat of the person, the seat of your character. It's like the control center of your, your humanity, your personhood. It includes your will and includes your character. So cleansing the heart is what really cleanses the whole person. It's what really matters. And so the point is, uh, all these evil things, as Jesus says, they actually emerge out of the heart of the person. And that's far more important than what goes into your stomach. And so cleansing the heart is now in the Messiah. That's the key thing. Now that Messiah has come, and now that he has inaugurated the new covenant, this is what true clean and unclean refers to. It refers to cleanness of the heart. And so for us, as we think through what Jesus says here, really the point is that, is that religious activity and religious habits, they're not bad. It's just that they mean very little if they're a mask, right? If they're just a, a way to appear religious or to appear godly or to appear Christian, but your heart is unclean. It's your heart that really controls you. It's your heart that really matters. And if your heart, as he said earlier, is far from God, even though you look religious, that's not a good thing. But if your heart is close to God, if your heart has been cleansed by the Spirit of God, if your heart is pure so that what increasingly flows out of your heart are 
the kinds of things that please Jesus and are like him, well, then that's what really matters. Religious activity with an unclean heart is a very bad thing. But a clean heart makes you a clean person, and then your religious activity is actually useful and pleasing to God.